Listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Welcome to Ideas on Trapped, and today we are going to be talking about human cooperation. All the things we have achieved as a species, from monuments to cities, inventions, and institutions of various functions, were enabled by our ability to find a common purpose and work together. Cooperation also enabled many terrible things like wars, terrorist groups, and many social discriminations with bad consequences. My guest in today's episode is Nicola Raihani and she helped me explore the origins, mechanisms, and consequences of human cooperation. She is a professor of human evolution and behavior at University College London. She's an elected fellow of Royal Society of Biology and previous winner of the Philip Leverhulme Prize in Psychology. A new book, The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World, is a riveting read and it is the subject of our conversation today. I hope you enjoy it and as always, thank you for listening. Ideas on Trap is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for trading financial products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, and many more. It is the leading financial services marketplace that gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within a single secure platform. Download the iInvest app on your Google Play Store or iOS App Store today and start investing at your convenience from anywhere in the world. Terms and conditions apply. And now, let's listen to the podcast. It's very great to have you on the show and I want us to talk about your book. Um, first of all, I'd like to know why did you decide to write about human cooperation? Is it an outflow of your research? Is there something you find particularly interesting about the subject, especially considering the wealth of material that is already out there? Yes, so it is part of my research and what I work on is the evolution of social behaviour. And so the book is very much related to the kind of research that I do, which involves humans, but also involves non-human species as well. Part of the reason for writing the book was that I had been researching in this area and there was a lot of interesting findings that I thought, you know, that other people might like to know about. But I think another sort of big motive for me in writing the book or a message that I hope the book can convey is to dispel this increasingly common worldview of interactions as being zero sum and the idea that individuals that are helpful or kind or do things that provide benefits to others without necessarily getting anything back in that moment is somehow 
a sucker's thing to do or is not the best way to win at this game of life that we're all playing. And that's the notion that I really wanted to dispel. I wanted to dispel this, um, the misconception behind the idea of the selfish gene, that that would promote selfish behaviour and to really show that actually the history of life on Earth is a history of cooperation. It's a history of teamwork. It's a history of smaller units joining forces and becoming larger units and becoming teams and that we see that at all levels of life and so cooperation really is one of the most natural and powerful phenomena on the planet and that's really what I would like people to take away from the book is an understanding that cooperation isn't something that's just for suckers cooperation is a huge part of the history of life on earth your argument in the book is very much grounded in the science of evolution. What I see mostly for people who are pro-cooperation view of society is that their accounts or their defense of cooperation is very much moralistic. Whereas you are taking the scientific approach, what would you say is responsible for the confusion or the misconception about the notion of cooperation has been zero-sum. I know Richard Dawkins himself came out and, and said he somewhat regretted the selfish gene metaphor because of some of the misleading narratives that it has led to. So what would you say is responsible for the popular misconception around the notion of cooperation between humans as something extraordinary and not really natural to us as a species? I think there are probably lots of different answers to that question. So I think when it comes to the selfish gene, I think for a lot of people, it's just the fact that the title is so salient and corresponds to a word that we use all the time in our everyday language, the word selfish which really has quite a negative connotation. And so I think despite the fact, like you said, that Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene itself and in his subsequent books has tried to really dispel this idea that selfish genes are associated with selfish behaviour. I think for many people, they don't really get past the title or for some reason the title is very salient in their minds and becomes the metaphor for how they understand the book. So I think that's one answer. But then I think when it comes to people's surprise, if you like, at learning that humans are a cooperative species, I think that even though we are an inordinately cooperative species, lots of the cooperation that we do in our daily lives is stuff that we take completely for granted. So it's things like getting on a crowded commuter train in the morning and being able to reach your destination unharmed. I mean, that is an amazing feat. The fact that we can climb onto this train and sit in very close proximity to all these other individuals that are complete strangers, actually, and expect to arrive at our destination unharmed. And things would be pretty different if you actually filled that train with chimpanzees. I mean, they wouldn't, you know, it would not be a pretty sight when the train arrived at its destination. So it's not a given that individuals will, you know, sit there and be pro-social and not aggressive to one another. But we do it. And I think because many of these examples of cooperation that we do have become so familiar to us and are so much part of our daily lives, 
And yet we see many, many examples of conflict in our everyday lives as well. And I think it can lead people into a sense of surprise when you actually say, no, look, we really are a very cooperative species, because I think for a lot of people, what's salient and the kinds of things that we tend to focus on and the kinds of stories that are covered in our newspapers tend to be stories of conflict and of cooperation and of cheating. So I think in some respects, we are given to overlook just how cooperative we really are, I think. And I think it's easy to do that. Judging by some of the responses you've gotten to the book, would you say you succeeded in your goal in writing it? What were the most (laughs) pleasing and the most surprising part of the feedbacks you've got, either from the public or from colleagues or other academics? I think it's still quite early days, to be honest. I mean, I think it's a bit too soon for me to judge how well the book has been received and what people really think of it. I've been really fortunate to have had lots of very nice feedback from colleagues and from people that I don't know as well, and and also from the general public. So by and large, until now, the reviews that I've seen, at least, have been reasonably positive. Um, Yeah, I think it's still quite early to say. I mean, maybe ask me again in another year's time when, (laughs) when I've had a bit more... I'd like to think that the book has landed well, but it's very difficult. I think when you're so close to something and you're so intimately acquainted with it and you you kind of really know what you want that thing to do. You know, for me, I know what message I want the book to convey. It's quite hard for me to then put myself in the shoes of a naive reader and to really assess whether it has landed in the way that I think or I hoped it would. I can't speak for this reader and say it has landed well. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Quite early in the book, you, in my opinion, dispelled a very important argument, in my view. And please do correct me if I'm not reading this accurately, which is that cooperation derives or gets its purpose from groups as opposed to individuals. Why is this view still popular? Maybe perhaps among the so-called cultural evolutionists. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I necessarily disagree with the cultural group selection argument, but I think there are several different flavours of that argument. And so it can be quite difficult to pin down exactly what claims are being made. But the idea that humans cooperate because of the benefits this yields to groups rather than the benefits that this yields to individuals or to their relatives, I think doesn't have really empirical support. And so that's the idea that I do come out sort of quite strongly against quite early on in the book. And, you know, there are some of my colleagues who I really respect who are doing very interesting work in this space who would really disagree with me on this point. And so I think um, the jury is still out to some extent as to whether we ought to think of human groups as being the units that selection acts upon or whether we retain the idea of the individual as being the important level of selection. And for me, the evidence just isn't really strong enough that human groups and the individuals within them always have such closely aligned incentives that would facilitate this kind of group level selection. But, you know, reasonable people disagree. And I think that's actually one of the interesting areas in our field because if we all agreed on everything we'd probably pack up and go home because we'd have figured it all out. I'm not in any way qualified to adjudicate that particular debate but what I really like about 
your book and why I am persuaded by your arguments in the book is you sort of start from the really micro to the big picture, you know, human society at large. And one of the most brilliant part of the book that I really like is how cooperation works within individuals from prokaryotic cells to eukaryotic cells to multicellularism, you know, Walk me through the mechanisms of cooperation within individual organisms. Yeah, and the reason why I presented the book like that, actually, in those four different parts, which scale up to increasing levels of complexity, was because I wanted to really push this point that cooperation is really central to the evolution of life as we know it. And cooperation isn't just something that we see only in our own species or only in primates or anything like that. Cooperation is really, you know, this hidden puppet master behind the appearance of all life on Earth. And so for me, I felt that starting with that very, very tiny perspective, the molecular perspective, and seeing ourselves, our individual bodies, as profound feats of cooperation, as collectives, as groups of genes cooperating inside genomes and cells working together, I felt that that view was really helpful to convey some of the broader points in the book, namely that this is something that we see that has evolved repeatedly and at all levels of life. And this is something that's very, very fundamental to life as we know it on Earth. And the other thing that's interesting in a way, when you take that perspective and when you look at life at all different levels, including at the cellular level, the genetic level, the organismal level and the societal level, is that you start to see these broad patterns that jump out at all those different layers of life. And you start to see, for example, that there's always this tension between cooperation for global or for collective benefits and the potential for local scale cooperation to undermine that collective good. And we see that, you know, in our individual bodies and we see it in our societies. And so we start to see that there are these sort of general patterns that define how cooperation works at all levels of life. And for me, those sort of big lessons, those big picture lessons are some of the most important things, I think, for understanding why life is the way it is and how we got here and what it means to be cooperative. One salient point that I really like is that you talked about cooperation as not devoid of conflict, you know, because generally we tend to see conflict in the society as a sign that we are not a cooperative species or that our mechanism for cooperation, our instincts for cooperation is temporary. You know, so talk to me more about this dynamic between conflict and cooperation and how they are constantly working together at a balance. Yeah, and this actually relates to the question that you asked at the start, which is why are people surprised to learn that humans are cooperative? And I think you're totally right. When we open the newspaper or when we watch the news, we're confronted with so many examples of conflict and I think what is maybe counterintuitive or not perhaps well appreciated is that many of the examples of conflict that we learn about or that we observe in the natural world are actually examples of cooperation. But they just so happen to be cooperation which results in costs for some people. So, for example, we don't normally think of the words nepotism 
and corruption and bribery and cronyism as being forms of cooperation. But of course, those are all forms of cooperation, but they just so happen to be occurring at a hyper-local scale among relatives and among friends and acquaintances. And they also yield wider costs to society. When we see, for example, intergroup conflict, it's very easy to focus on the harm that's done as a consequence of that conflict and to focus on the fact that there is, you know, an obvious disagreement between two competing factions. But that does slightly mask the fact that for any intergroup conflict to occur, there has to be cooperation among members of the same group to be able to, you know, successfully take part or participate in that intergroup conflict. And so people don't often think, for example, of things like war as being an example of cooperation. If we watch the news now and we see things like the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, many people wouldn't say the Taliban are a particularly cooperative group of people. But that I think it's slightly missing the point because there will be a lot of cooperation happening inside the group. And that's kind of the point as well that I that I make in the book is that cooperation is not always this thing that generates global benefits for everybody. And cooperation can quite often have victims, in fact. And many things that we interpret as being conflict, you know, which are conflict, are also forms of cooperation. And so I describe it in the book as being a double-edged sword in a way. On the one hand, cooperation can generate benefits to one subset of people, but it quite often generates costs to a different subset of individuals. And so whether you view something as being cooperative or not is quite often a matter of where you stand in that interaction or what your perspective on that interaction is. Talking about cooperation in humans, where you sort of started with that, which I think is the best place to start, is the relationship between the two sexes and how we raise our offsprings. And you sort of explore the dynamics of cooperation, given the different individual incentives and genetic imperatives of the two sexes. And for me, this is coming at a time, I wouldn't say it's totally new, when there is a lot of discussion about the two genders, the rights of women in society, the way we treat women in society, their roles is getting a lot of attention in the media and rightfully so. What do you think we can learn from the science of evolution about how to look at some of these problems from a cooperative standpoint and to better mediate the discussions and douse some of the social tensions? I think one of the interesting points that you get when you have an evolutionary perspective is the realisation that for a mammal and for a primate, we are actually quite unusual in that mothers receive any help at all in the production of offspring. So for the vast majority of mammals, the care of offspring is done entirely by the mother. And in fact, that's also the case for all of the other great apes. We're really an outlier with respect to the fact that not only do fathers usually have quite a big input into raising their offspring, but offspring are also raised by a bunch of other family members, including older siblings and also grandparents and other family members and people who live locally to to the child. And so in that sense, I think potentially the evolutionary perspective offers 
a slight pushback against this idea that all of the focus on the mother raising the offspring can be blamed on patriarchal norms and things like this because you know we are mammals and we are you know we're in a lineage where for the vast majority of species all of that care is done by the mother and so we're already unusual in that sense but I think the other perspective that we can get from thinking about things in this evolutionary way is also to realize just how strange the Western model of the nuclear family is, which actually has been in part the the cause behind this idea that mothers ought to stay at home and look after the children and then fathers will go out to work and earn money and that's how that division of labour will work. And in fact, you know, when we look in broad historical perspective at, you know, the kinds of environments that humans evolved in and the kinds of societies that we lived in, and also when we look more broadly at the way that many contemporary human populations live nowadays, we've realised that actually the Western nuclear family is a very, very recent invention, and it's a very unusual invention as well. And so what it gives me is this First of all, an appreciation that, yes, we are a mammal and yes, therefore, we can expect that on average, all else being equal, mothers will tend to invest more in their offspring than perhaps fathers will. So that's one take home we can take from this evolutionary perspective. The other thing Mm. we can take away, however, is something slightly different, which is the idea that mothers ought to stay at home and be the exclusive caregivers for their offspring is also completely at odds with our evolutionary history. And in fact, you know, the the normal human arrangement, if you like, is for children to be raised by multiple caregivers, including other children, and for mothers to receive lots of help in the production of young. And so it would be a very unusual situation, actually, for our species, for children to be raised only by the mother and in isolation from other children. And that's what I think, in some ways, the cultural Western ideology dictates or prescribes. And I also think that that um, cultural prescription is at odds with our evolutionary history and, and how how children would have and still are raised in many societies. Going further a bit on that, because I thought really about this point when I was reading the book. I mean, you elaborated our cooperative breeding, you know, this idea that you call cooperative breeding, how evolution co-opts the help of relatives, older siblings, grandmothers, and other relatives into, you know, collectively raising the offspring of the woman. And the evolution of Western societies or generally industrial societies towards the nuclear family where it's just the husband, the wife and the children. Do you think this is the source of the tension we are seeing in society, you know, moving away from a relatively expanded cooperative breeding model to this individual family units? When you say the tension in society, do you mean the tension about who ought to be primarily responsible for raising children? Yes. Right. Yeah, I think in part that is predicated on this kind of cultural ideology that says the nuclear family is the family unit. It's the mum, the dad and their offspring. And don't forget as well that it's quite common in Western families for women to not have that many children and to have them quite close together. 
And those two things also reduce the amount of help that a, a mother might get at home because she typically won't have any older children around who are old enough to help in the way that children do in many contemporary forager societies that are able to help with raising their younger siblings. And so I think in part, yes, the this emphasis on the ideal, and it is an ideal, of the Western nuclear family is responsible for this disparity in gender roles or the expectation that women ought to be the ones who are primarily doing everything with the children and, you know, men have their other role to play by going out to work or whatever that is. I'm going to get to what you call the social dilemma in a bit, but one other point in the book that I find really fascinating. And I find that fascinating because, again, I'm going to refer to the cultural selection group who place a lot of emphasis on social learning as the software, so to speak, of how we've been able to scale up cooperation in human societies. But in your book, you put a lot more emphasis on teaching, you know, which I, I find very fascinating. Tell me a bit how, how this works. How teaching works. Yes. So we define teaching, or many evolutionary biologists define teaching as any behavior which helps a pupil to learn something and which evolves because of that function. So for a long time, we thought that teaching was unique to humans. You know, teaching is this thing that when we think of it, we quite often will think of a classroom setting and we'll think of a very institutionalized kind of behavior where you have one individual whose job it is to impart knowledge to a bunch of pupils and to help them learn. And for a long time, we thought that, you know, to be a teacher, we would require sophisticated cognitive mechanisms and specifically the ability to understand your pupils' knowledge state and then to be able to take actions to improve that or to remedy that. We now know that that isn't the case. So we now know that humans aren't the only species that can teach. And we also know that teaching doesn't have to involve very sophisticated cognition at all. And in fact, one of the first species where we found very compelling evidence for teaching outside of humans wasn't another primate, it wasn't another mammal, but it was in fact in a, a species of ant called the tandem running ant. And this was shown in 2006 by Nigel Franks and his colleagues. And they showed that knowledgeable ants that know where a good location is, for example, the location of a new nest site, or the location of a food patch will teach their naive conspecifics how to find that food or that nest site. And the way that they teach them is by doing tandem running. So tandem running basically involves the teacher ant running in the front and maintaining contact with the pupil ant who runs directly behind them. And the teacher ant makes lots and lots of stops on the journey to this interesting destination, which allows the pupil to make small circles and to learn about any important landmarks on the journey. And by doing this, the pupil learns how to find their way to this important place that they're being taught. And once the pupil has learned the route, then they can actually become a teacher themselves. They can teach other naive ants how to find this way to the food without being carried, which is how the ants would normally get there. So clearly, you know, we don't think teaching in ants 
relies on anything like the kind of cognition that was implicated in humans. Ants almost certainly don't know what other ants know. They don't have concepts of belief states or understand the mental perspectives of other individuals in their colony. And yet the behaviour they perform here is teaching on a functional level. It is helping a pupil or a naive individual to learn something that it wouldn't otherwise be able to learn. And this illustrates something which is a more recurring theme in the book that I come back to a few times, which is that when we want to compare the behaviour of humans and other species, it's very tempting often to think that, you know, these kinds of sophisticated behaviours that we see in our own species, we'll only find them in humans and that we won't find them in other species. And in fact, that's often not the case. We often do find that other species reach the same behavioural destination as us, but perhaps they get there by a different cognitive journey. So they use different cognitive mechanisms to get to the same behavioural destination. And I think that's a really important point, actually, when we're comparing the behaviour of humans and non-humans, which is that we can find lots of similarities in the kinds of behaviours we observe. But sometimes it's the cognition that underpins those behaviours that's really the point of difference between humans and other species. Ideas on Trapped is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for treasury bills and now the preferred financial services marketplace in Africa. With iInvest, you have access to various investment opportunities in one safe and secure platform. iInvest enables you to grow your income and savings by making your money work for you. Visit iInvestNG.com for real-time access to products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds and equities. Or download the app on Google Play Store and iOS App Store today. One of the reasons that we've managed to succeed as much as we have as humans, uh, I would say, is the ability to extend our cooperative instincts to non-familiar members of our species. And usually here, I'm talking about the popular representation of the science. Robert Trivers's work on reciprocity is often the most cited mechanism for why this is possible. But in your book, you actually argue that this is insufficient to explain cooperation within and between large groups um, for the benefit of people who haven't read it. Can you, can you tell me why is reciprocity insufficient in this case? Sure. So just to clarify, I think reciprocity is hugely important and it is a it is a mechanism that is important in helping us understand how cooperation can be sustained among individuals that don't have a genetic vested interest in one another or in one another's offspring. So among individuals who are non-relatives, there is a common tendency, if you like, to assume that all cooperation in humans in particular can either be explained by kin selection, that's just by helping your relatives, or if it's not kin selection, then it's reciprocity. And I think that is a really overly simplistic view. And we know that there are lots and lots of other mechanisms that support cooperation among non-relatives. And like you said, 
when you start thinking about cooperation in larger groups, then it becomes very clear that there are limits to the power of reciprocity. So if you imagine reciprocity, first of all, between a pair of individuals, reciprocity is basically tit for tat. I do something for you, you do something for me. If you don't do something for me, I won't do something for you. So reciprocity can work quite well among pairs of individuals where one individual can do something like help the other and then the partner can either reciprocate or not reciprocate. Um, and then that can spark conditional behaviour and so on and so forth. Things get a bit more complicated when we think about groups, though, because if you imagine that you're in a group of three and you're working, for example, on a joint project where you could either pull your weight and cooperate or you could defect and let the other individuals do all the work instead. Well, it's not clear how you ought to respond to a defector in that group situation, because let's say you're paired with one individual who defects and they don't pull their weight. And then you're paired with another one who contributes and cooperates and does the work they're supposed to do. Now, if you reciprocate against the defector and you also decide not to work because, you know, you have a defector in your group who's not pulling their weight. Well, you also harm the cooperator, your cooperative partner, as a byproduct of that decision. And so it becomes very clear that once you're in the realm of interactions involving three or more individuals, reciprocity just can't support cooperation because when you defect against defectors in that situation, you also harm any cooperative individuals in the group. And so what we realise then is that when we're in the realm of thinking about groups, we have to be able to think of other mechanisms that can support cooperation. And one of the mechanisms that I've been very interested in, that's a much more targeted mechanism for dealing with defectors, is punishment. Because that allows you to respond to the defection of a cheating partner without also harming any cooperative partners as a byproduct. And there's been lots and lots of attention paid to how effective punishment is and how it can evolve. But there is a widespread agreement that reciprocity on its own can't support cooperation in large groups because of the dilemma, if you like, that I outlined a moment ago. Talk to me more about punishment, because I've always conceived the same punishment as a bit of a last resort kind of thing, like people sort of see the benefit of cooperation and they cooperate and punishment is just what you resort to when you have these really, really bad actors who are the outliers in the group. But in your book, the way you describe punishment is something that we constantly positively harness to further deepen our cooperation. Tell me more how that works. So people typically study punishment in the context of laboratory games, where you can have people take part in social interactions, where cooperating involves paying a financial cost to help other individuals, and where you can also allow people to punish one another by paying some of their experimental money in order to levy a fine on any individuals that are not cooperating. So that's often how we study punishment in the lab. It's by allowing people to pay to subtract money from people who are not cooperating in the context of that game. And what we find in the lab settings is that people love to do this. They're very, very happy to pay some of their money to subtract money from somebody else. And 
there is some evidence that when you introduce a punishment option into a game, like a public goods game, a sort of group cooperation game, that when you introduce this potential for punishment, that does increase the overall level of cooperation in the game. So there is a sense in which we think, based on these experimental studies, that the threat of punishment, the, the possibility that you could be punished, does act as an incentive for people to cooperate when they might not otherwise do so. But I think one of the more recent findings that's starting to emerge in this field, and which also ties in actually with what we observe in real world settings when we look at penal systems and things like this, is that when an individual in these games is punished by one of their peers in that setting, they quite often don't cooperate in response to being punished. And they quite often retaliate instead, or they continue to defect. And what can happen when people start to punish one another in these games is that instead of sparking cooperation, the punishment can actually set off these feuds of punishment and counter-punishment among players in the game. And that actually results in all the individuals in the game earning a lot less than they would had none of them punished in the first place. It's a little bit complex, but I think what we know about punishment in humans, at least, is that the threat of it seems to have a positive effect on promoting cooperation. But once that threat is enacted, there's not very good evidence, in my view, that punishment that's actually levied on the target does anything to change that individual's behaviour in a positive way. And the reason why I think that that has some bearing on what we see in the real world is that when we look at the design of penal systems, and in particular penal systems in the West, what we see is that those systems are very much designed with a retribution goal in mind. And so they're very similar in some respects in a, in a very stylized way to the kind of punishment that people enact in these games that we play in the lab where it's you did something wrong and now you have to pay for that. And what we see in the West, at least, is that those kinds of penal systems are massively ineffective at changing criminals' behaviour. We see very, very high rates of recidivism, and there's really not that much evidence that increasing the severity of the punishment will have a bigger deterrent effect or is more likely to have a reformative effect on people. And there's lots and lots of very good studies showing that actually being punished in institutionally in this way is not that likely to result in a positive societal outcome if we think that societal outcome is changing the behaviour of those people. And I think that in part what we miss in the laboratory games and what we also miss in the design of Western penal systems in general is the other side of this punishment coin, which is very important, which is the opportunity for rehabilitation and the opportunity to be allowed to come back into society or to re-enter the social group and to be a productive member of that group. And um, I mean, I could talk about this for quite a long time, and this is going a little bit beyond actually some of the work that I present in the book, but it's something that I am quite active in thinking about in my own research. And I think that, you know, if the stated goal of a penal system is to reduce crime in society, then by any measure, lots of the penal systems that we currently have are failing. 
And probably one reason for that is that we're missing something important. Punishment can't only be about retribution. There has to be some other ingredient, rehabilitation specifically, that helps to make punishment mechanisms effective. Well, the good news is that you also talk about our ability to create new rules and institutions as one of the other ways we deepen our cooperation. And I think about this and the institutions we've created today. I mean, it's easy to look at them as punishment institutions. But my reading of your argument is that we would not come up with these institutions in the first place if we are not interested in cooperating as a species and as a people. Now, what I want to understand is some of the other motives that may have developed in our, should I say, psychological wiring or education or in our relationship with institutions that gives cooperation sort of a bad rap in popular conception, you know, because if you look at something like masks and its enforcement, if you look at some of the controversies around lockdown and even the way the criminal justice system treats some groups in the society, it can be difficult to take a positive look of institutions. Would you say that some of these other motives, be they psychological, educational, or cultural, are what is complicating cooperation and the role of these institutions in society? Well, I mean, I guess not all institutions are going to have wide benefits, right? I guess we're going slightly into the work of people like uh, Darren Ashamoglu and James Robinson. You know, they had a very famous book called Why Nations Fail. And there they distinguish between institutions that they describe as being, I think it's inclusive or extractive. Mm -hmm. And essentially, they link prosperity to the presence of inclusive institutions. And conversely, they link poverty or reduced in development to, to nations having been seeded with more extractive institutions. And so, I mean, like, I'm not an expert in, in that field, but I think the idea that all institutions will generate equal benefits for all members of society is clear, you know, like we know that that's just not true. I mean, we can see that even when we look at the political parties that we vote for and the different kinds of policies, which are basically institutions that they propose. And, you know, it's clear that some of those policies are going to be more beneficial to some individuals than to others, right? And that's what we bargain over in society in a way, is what what are the institutions we want to live by? What are the rules that we want to have imposed upon us? I'm not sure if that's really answered your question or not, but I don't think that all institutions are necessarily widely beneficial. I agree with you. Uh, one note where I would like us to end is the relationship between cooperation and competition. I mean, like you rightly said, not all institutions promote cooperation and not all cooperation leads to good outcomes or desired outcomes for all groups. I mean, like your reference to the Taliban earlier, they are a pretty cooperative group and their goal widely differs from other actors of the society. So how can cooperation be put to better use vis-a-vis -vis all these conflicting goals in society? Well, I think, 
you know, some of the biggest problems we now face as a species are problems of failed cooperation. And they include things like anthropogenic climate change, loss of biodiversity, species extinctions. You know, there's a long list of ways that we as humans are failing to cooperate. And one of the important solutions to these problems will be to find ways to cooperate to generate global benefits and not just to cooperate at local scales generating local benefits. Now I very deliberately didn't offer policy recommendations at the end of my book because I think that if this was an easy problem to solve we would have solved it already and so I didn't really want to offer sort of glib solutions to these massively, seemingly intractable problems. I don't think it's beyond our collective ability to find solutions to these kinds of global problems. And I think that we have done it before. And I think therefore we should have some optimism or hope that we can find solutions. But I also think that, you know, if the current pandemic situation has showed us anything about our ability to cooperate globally and to realise just how interdependent we are on one another, it will have shown us that finding these kinds of solutions is not going to be easy and that we shouldn't underestimate the scale of the problem that's ahead of us. And I think it's also worth bearing in mind that, you know, there is no preordained outcome for our species. And it's not written in the stars that our species has to have a happy ending and that things, you know, all work out well for us. So, yes, it's in our collective gift to confront and to resolve the global cooperation problems that we now face. But we can do it. But whether we will do it, I think, is really an open question. And... I'm hopeful that we will do it, but I'm far from convinced that we will. Lastly, before I let you go, this is a bit of a tradition on the show. What's one big idea that you like to see people think about more or talk about more or adopt more? It may be something you're working on, maybe something from a different field or by other people. What's your one big idea? For me, it's a big question and it relates to what we just spoke about, which is how can we find ways to encourage people to think and to value global benefits to cooperation rather than the thing which is much more natural and easy for us to do, which is to think about the local scale and the people that are near to us and known to us. And I think that is a very, very important question for us to get to grips with, because it's in doing that that we will find the answers to the huge challenges that we face. Thank you so much, Nicola. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks, Toby. Thanks for having me on your show. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com. 